I'm Jonathan Mosin, and at Mosin at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking, what might Microsoft's acquisition of Nuance mean for the blind community? And what's your favorite text-to-speech engine in the world? There's more on the use of ableist language, meditation, Apple's next big event, and more. Mosin at Large Podcast. To quote some of my favorite people ever, it's wonderful to be here. It's certainly a thrill. I really appreciate that you are here too. That's really what's important. So thank you very much. The countdown is on. We have the Apple event coming up on Tuesday. That is US time. And it's called Spring Loaded. I wonder whether the marketing people at North American companies in particular ever actually take some of these people to one side and say, you know, we do have a global market here. And so often you've got to do the translation as somebody in the Southern Hemisphere. When Apple says something's coming in the fall, they actually mean the Northern Hemisphere autumn, which is actually our spring. I do not know why these North American companies that have a global market share and want customers all over the place choose to use terms that are season specific when they could talk about the third quarter or whatever it is, you know. But anyway, spring-loaded is what it's called. We might be getting the AirTags finally. Looks like we are getting a new iPad and possibly a new iPad mini. Now, I did want to tell you that we are going to be having a special Mosin at Large event in Clubhouse at around about 6.45 a.m. New Zealand time. It's designed to happen after the Apple event. So it will be about 2.45 p.m. Eastern time on the Tuesday. 11.45 a.m. Pacific. The start time is subject to a bit of change depending on when the Apple event finishes. So it could be a bit earlier and it could be a bit later. And you are very welcome to pop into Clubhouse and join me for that. We'll be taking lots of comments and we will put up an episode of Mosin at Large kind of with some of the highlights of your comments after the event. So you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it in the Apple TV app. The usual places apply in terms of watching the event. It does take place at 10 a.m. Pacific time on Tuesday. That equates to 1 a.m. Eastern, bright and early here at 5 a.m. on Wednesday morning. And if you're in Australia, it's even worse. It's like 3 a.m. Eastern Australia time. So you can wake up in the middle of the night to hear in the middle of autumn about an event called Spring Loaded. Anyway, I do hope you'll join me for comments on Clubhouse. It'll be interesting to know what you think, whether there's anything that is going to cause you to make a purchase after the event on Tuesday. Should be good. Do make sure you join us and have your say. Did you see it coming? I didn't see it coming. Microsoft has purchased Nuance Communications this week for $19.2 billion. I mean, mate, that is an incredible amount of money. That is almost an unfathomable amount of money, isn't it? $19.2 billion. What's the attraction? Well, I understand that a lot of the attraction is the healthcare industry connections that Nuance has. But there are a number of blindness-related implications of this purchase because Nuance are the people that give you the vocalizer voices that are so prevalent these days. There's a version of them that comes with JAWS, and they're nice and responsive there. You can purchase versions of them that work with other screen readers like NVDA and I think Narrator as well. You can uh, hook into Narrator with them. There are also nuanced voices all over iOS. All those vocalizer voices are in there as well. 
and Nuance has the rights to eloquence. Apart from the text-to-speech side of it, there's Dragon Naturally Speaking, which many of us use. Nuance plays a pivotal role in the operation of Siri. So much to Apple's chagrin, Microsoft Nuance is going to be playing a key part in Apple's Siri. And that might be quite good for the industry because it may inspire Apple to seek a bit of independence from Nuance. Now, it could be a coincidence because Microsoft is a very big place. But did you notice a few weeks ago, Microsoft came out with a survey that they were pushing heavily on social media where they were asking blind people to comment on text-to-speech voices and what they were looking for. And I thought this was very interesting, and I'm glad that they asked the question. Because, as I've said recently on this show, when you look at some of the things that Microsoft are doing in the accessibility space, they're done with the best of intentions. But Microsoft products have started to get more verbose. They've started to override your screen reader preferences, for example, What was I doing? The other day, I was just navigating the context menu in the system tray for OneDrive. And I was astounded to find that OneDrive is now speaking shortcut keys in that menu, even though I have JAWS set not to speak them automatically. So well-meaning sighted people who undoubtedly are doing these things for the right reasons are overriding our preferences for efficiency and lack of verbosity because they think they're doing the right thing. So it would be nice if they asked us, and I am glad that they are asking us about this question regarding text-to-speech. And of course, there is not a uniform answer to this question. What do we look for? And perhaps what we look for varies a little bit depending on how long we've been blind, how long we've used a computer for. Those of us who go way back and we're using computers in the 80s, and I know we have a few listeners who go even earlier than that. I go back to the early 80s. The first computer that I used that talked was an Apple IIe, or maybe it was a 2C. It was one of those things with the Echo text-to-speech engine, and I guess if you could get used to that and use it productively, you could get used to anything. There were just two rates of speed with that thing, and it was pretty, I guess, horrible speech if you listen to it now. So what people like me grew up with was speech that you could crank up and it didn't matter really necessarily how human-like it sounded. What mattered was getting the stuff done. But there are people who aren't on a time crunch, who want speech that makes it sound like they are being read to. And boy, have we made amazing progress with this in recent years. If you listened to the speak screen demo that we did last week with the Siri Neural Engine voices, thanks to that tip that Zach B, Zach B sent in to us, you will know we really are getting there. And you listen to those voices in the immersive reader of Microsoft Edge. If your objective is to, say, put on a nice long book and be read to as if you were listening to an audio book, we are making some really good progress. And of course, you will never get those little inflections, dare I use the term, the nuances of a human narrator who can interpret emotion and things that a machine could never do. But we're making a lot of progress. Now, me... I like a text-to-speech engine that sounds okay, not unpleasant to the ears, but that I can crank up and that I can rely upon for proofing. I love my Braille, but I do like the idea that just for proofing something I've written, if I can rely on the speech enough so that most of the time 
if I hear something sounding wrong, then I know it's a typo, then I'm good with that. And because maybe I've used it for a long time, and because I believe it meets those standards, I really still like eloquence. It's responsive. It's not unpleasant to listen to. And I really get on well with eloquence. And I see that some people are petitioning Microsoft already in an informal sense, not one of those online petitions or anything yet. But people have been pinging the MSFT Enable account on Twitter and saying, okay, now that you've got nuance, put eloquence into Windows. And as my children say, I am totally like down with that. Let us have eloquence in Windows. And I say, even better, let us have eloquence on the iPhone. I would be so happy if I could get rid of all those other voices and just have eloquence on my iPhone. Now, I know there may be an issue with this at the moment, because from what I can gather, there may not be a 64-bit eloquence out there at the moment, but Microsoft now owns the source. So it could be ported to 64-bit, and we could have eloquence on all sorts of platforms. I would be delighted by that. I know that many blind people would be thrilled by that. Nuance owns a lot more. They own OCR products and engines. They dabble in a bit of PDF stuff. A lot of text to speech lurking about there. And of course, Dragon Naturally Speaking, I wonder what that might mean for Microsoft's dictation efforts, which have been improving. And actually, I think that Microsoft's dictation is already in pretty good shape. So the degree to which they might choose to integrate what Nuance has done with Dragon, I think remains to be seen. But what do you think the possible benefits are of Nuance being owned by Microsoft? Do you think that there are any potential pitfalls of Microsoft owning Nuance? As a consumer in this space, I can't actually really think of any. I can only see possible synergies, possible benefits. I mean, putting eloquence to one side, which is the thing that super excites me, The idea of the vocalizer voices turning up in Windows, that wouldn't be a bad thing at all either, would it? I'd like that. So it could be a good thing. Let's just see what happens with this. But it did prompt me to bring out the old chestnut about text-to-speech engines. What is the best text-to-speech engine in the world? I mean, let's think big here. What's the best TTS and why? What is it that you personally look for? And there's no right or wrong answer here, of course, because it's such a personal preference question. And it also varies, I think, depending on your use case. If you are somebody who uses your computer for leisure and just to be read to, there's not that time crunch, say, that there is for me where I want to process a lot of information as quickly as possible. And I'd also be interested in hearing from those who have hearing impairments of various kinds. Because a lot of people think that those with hearing impairments would prefer more human-sounding speech. In my experience, and of course I have a hearing impairment myself, and talking to others with a hearing impairment, it doesn't actually always follow that that is the case. A lot of people do like eloquence in the hearing impairment community, and I find it interesting that that is the case. So do share your preferences with me. And I mean, It's kind of boring if you just get in touch and say, I like this text-to-speech engine because it's the best. I mean, what makes it the best? Let's get into the weeds here. Tell me why you think 
a particular text-to-speech engine cuts the mustard for you? What attributes does it possess that makes it the best in your view? Do get in touch. Jonathan at MushroomFM.com is how you can email me. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at MushroomFM.com. Attach an audio clip if you like. Give listeners a break from me. Or you can write it down and I'll read it. You can also call the listener line 864-60-MOSIN. That is a U.S. Number 864-606-6736. Hi, Jonathan. Derry Lolly here. Hope you're keeping well today. Just a quick note on the uh, Windows on Microsoft buying nuance. Yes, and eloquence. I'm using a new setup today, my new Samsung uh, Q2U microphone, which you recommended, and the back, back, Backpack Studio. So, uh, yeah, um, my favorite screen reader at the moment is uh, Vocalizer Tom, and that's amusing, because I sometimes find eloquence after a long day is getting too much in my ears. But I do, uh, I would like eloquence on the iPhone, I think. But the problem is uh, I used to use Alex a lot on the iPhone, but I found it was mispronunciating certain words, say, like County Wexford in Ireland. It said We Wexford, and just a few other words like that. It didn't quite do me. So I'm using uh, Ivona, what's her name, Ava, and my iPhone and Tom on the vocalizer Tom on the on the Windows. So uh, keep up the good work. Great podcast. Love all love all of this thing. And I'm um, getting my mixer very soon. So and my audio interface, my Mo two M four very soon. So maybe I'll even sound better again. Thanks, Jonathan. Talk to you soon. Wow. Thanks for the endorsement there, Derry. I really appreciate that. Ah, don't let it go to your head, Tom. Don't let it go to your head. Yeah, thank you, Derry. Good luck with all your new audio initiatives. That Motu audio interface, while I haven't used it, does sound very good. And as we've been talking about in the Blind Podmaker community, it does have the accessible interface in Windows. But of course, as somebody else has pointed out, some of the hardware where the functions are on or off on the actual hardware, is not discernible by touch. So, yeah, it's getting more difficult to find the perfect audio interface. But it sounds like it's going to be a good choice. And the mic is sounding very good as well. Interesting, your comment about the eloquence fatigue. I hear this from time to time, and it's not something I experience myself. I do agree, though. Tom is a really good voice. But, you know, when I try these other voices, I switch back to eloquence and I kind of go... Ah, I'm home again. You know, that's how it sort of feels for me. I don't know what all the hype is about regarding Alex, because I agree with you. It mispronounces so much that to me, it's just not usable. You can't tell when you're proofing with Alex, whether you've made a mistake or it's just another of the many things Alex mispronounces. I just don't see the attraction. Different strokes and all that stuff, as this email from Brian Gaff testifies to. Well, myself, he begins. That's an interesting way to begin. Well, myself, I don't like eloquence. It has a nasty lisp to my ears. So for screen reader on the PC, I use eSpeak Quincy UK. Okay, I made this voice some years back myself, hating the native eSpeak nasal sing-song sound but it is responsive and can be cranked up, at least for me. Others seem unable to understand it, and I guess thereby is the problem. He continues, I like Dan the Man. I have it on the iPhone, but he is never going to be understandable when speaking fast like most natural voices. I still use natural voices for reading things out loud when I can, but for speed reading and navigation... Give me the artificial ones every time. 
I think eSpeak is let down by using poor US accents compared with its British ones. It can even do West Midlands and Afro-Caribbean and received pronunciation as well as the one I used just called UK English. All these new voices that are around now are just fiddling round the edges. The true intelligent ones, though, good at making things hound hound human? Goodness me, is this dictated? Uh, Sound human, I think, are still too slow for navigation in my view. Thank you, Brian. See, I can't understand eSpeak. I literally cannot understand it. And I had a really disappointing situation some time ago where I was interested in listening to quite a large body of work and I had to give up because they were using eSpeak as the text-to-speech voice in a sort of a tutorial environment and I just could not understand a word the bloody thing was saying. It was awful. So, I mean, I suppose that if you start, and this is the thing with text-to-speech, if you start with something at a really slow speed and you gradually crank up over time, which I think is what I have done over the years with Eloquence, I guess you can get used to it. And to be fair, I don't have a screen reader that uses eSpeak. But, gosh, that one's a tough one. That, That one just seems to me to be a huge regression. But people do like it. I accept that. Now, I do agree with you about Daniel. Daniel. Dan the Man, I like that voice a lot, but only the non-premium one, whatever they call it, the compact one they used to call it. Although in the recent version of iOS in 14.5, they must have updated it because it is saying some things very strangely. Words with L in them in particular and just various other words. The pronunciations got very weird with that voice of late, and I'm not sure what's going on with it. But it is still very good. I've gotten used to cranking it up to a decent speed. But the full voice, the high quality version of Daniel, you can almost hear the individual samples. One of the smoothest ones that I have found, and I agree Tom is pretty good, but I think the smoothest one that I've found is in the male area anyway, is Lee, Lee, the Australian voice. His premium version is quite smooth. That's good to listen to, but I still keep coming back to Daniel Compact, which I find that I can crank up to quite a good speed. What does Christopher Wright write? Well, in this instance, he writes, This is a personal preference, but my favorite TTS engines are the ones that use human recordings. While they take up more storage space, use more overall resources, and are not as responsive, they're worth it in my view because they make the listening experience much more enjoyable. When I desire responsiveness, I use eSpeak built into NVDA and enjoy it due to the inflection control. Specifically, I enjoy some of the voices from NeoSpeech, Vocalizer, and Evona. As I said before, Mac Alex is very good, though I prefer the older versions from Leopard and Snow Leopard. Finally, we can't forget about Microsoft Sam, especially the older SAPI 4 version from Windows 2000. While I'm not sure I could use it on a daily basis with NVDA, I find it extremely amusing to create skits featuring the voice doing all sorts of crazy things, including making weird sounds with the many defects, including soy. Microsoft Sam is a classic voice, 
that I'll always come back to purely for entertainment purposes. And on the jolly old Twitter, Craig Slater says, I really like the Ivona voices, as they seem to read really naturally, and they read UK phone numbers properly, which a lot of other voices don't do. I wish Apple would let us use them on their products. Hopefully one day they will. I understand that Apple was at one point working on a text-to-speech engine API, And if that actually does happen at some point, it would mean that you'd be able to buy text-to-speech engines in the App Store that could install and then be available universally to all apps right throughout the operating system. And indeed, in that regard, Apple would be playing catch-up to Android because Android's had that for totally like ever. Ben Blatchford is in touch and he says, Hi, Jonathan, long-time listener, first-time contributing. Well, welcome. We love that. Because if everybody was a lurker, we'd have nothing, nothing. I am getting a Pixel 5 today, says Ben, switching from my iPhone 8 Plus. Dude, that is a big change. Let me know how you get on with it, whether you like it, whether you regret it, whether you'll switch back, whether you're going to rock this thing. Now, he says, on the topic of text-to-speech voices, I like a voice that is responsive but natural. I know that there are not a lot of voices these days that fit both of these criteria. We either have voices that are responsive but mechanical sounding or natural sounding and sluggish. I really like the new Siri voices on iOS, but their sluggishness really is a factor for me when using them. I can't wait to see what Android has to offer in terms of voice selection. I don't like the way Apple is headed these days in terms of removing the fingerprint reader from the flagship phones. Anyway, just wanted to say thank you so much for putting the show together every weekend. Well, maybe they'll get you back, Ben, because I understand that a future iPhone, possibly this year, possibly next, will have an underscreen fingerprint reader so you'll just be able to put your finger on the screen and it will unlock so i believe if the rumor mills are correct that we'll be moving to a duality system where you can have face id or touch id on the same device what's on your mind send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down jonathan at mushroomfm.com that's j-o-n-a-t-h-a-n at mushroomfm.com or phone our listener line The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. We are going to continue our ablest language watch once again, and we will keep doing this as I find them. This one came in yesterday, and it is again from Radio New Zealand, reporting on some judicial proceedings. And it says here, A Southland farmer has been described as willfully blind to his employment obligations and fined $30,000 by the Employment Relations Authority. Now, I won't read the full story, but I will praise it by saying that this guy seems like a really dodgy dude. He didn't have a written employment agreement with this person who he's been pinged for. He employed quite a few other people, and it's difficult to determine whether he had written employment agreements with them. It looks like he really was not a good employer at all. So this is someone who clearly 
is flouting New Zealand employment law, and he's been pinged majorly for it. I will read a bit of the story here where it says the ERA, which is the Employment Relations Authority's determination, said that the farmer's breaches were intentional and he took no steps to familiarize himself with his legal obligations and was willfully blind. Now, I happen to be not a blind farmer, but a blind employer. I employ over 100 staff. And it is my responsibility to be familiar with employment law, and being blind doesn't prevent me from doing that. I can do so with Braille, with an uppercase B, with my screen reader using text-to-speech. I can ask people. I can make a phone call. So what else could we put instead of willfully blind to make the sentence mean the same thing? Well, you could have willfully negligent, willfully ignorant, willfully obtuse. You get the idea. None of it positive and none of it an accurate depiction of blindness. I don't know what is going on in New Zealand at the moment that we seem to be having a spate of these appalling occurrences of ableist language at the moment. And I think it does reflect the fact that there aren't many blind people, there aren't any, to the best of my knowledge, blind people in the media And there's such a lack of disability awareness in this country that it seldom gets challenged. So I tweeted the link to the story for those interested actually on my personal account. And then I also tweeted a link to an article that Rhonda sent me. And I really thank you so much, Rhonda, for sending this to me, or I might not have got it. It's from the BBC, and it talks about ableist language and why this stuff matters Because, you know, I know there are people who say, oh, man, are you just being politically correct? Haven't we got better things to do? You know, I've covered that before. And this article does such a fantastic job of why this stuff matters. Why it is absolutely important that we stand up. If we don't stand up against this stuff, then don't also complain when you find prejudice on the part of an employer who thinks that because you're blind, you are unaware, ignorant, lacking in faculties that an employer is looking for. I won't read the whole article, but I will do my best to remember to link to it in the show notes so that if you want to, you can have a read of this. But I would like to read some highlights because it is such a good article. And if the complaint that I lodged about the interview that I played very brief sections of in a previous episode is not upheld, and they do have to formally adjudicate on that complaint because we have broadcasting standards in this country, and one of them is that you can't denigrate a particular group. And of course, they clearly have denigrated disabled people by using ableist language in that context, so they are required to adjudicate. If they don't uphold that complaint, then I can go on, and I will, and I'll go to the Broadcasting Standards Authority, and I will give them a copy of this article. But I'll read you bits. It starts, Some of our most common ingrained expressions have damaging effects on millions of people, and many of us don't know we're hurting others when we speak. The author continues, I like being deaf. I like the silence, as well as the rich culture and language deafness affords me. When I see the word deaf on the page, it evokes a feeling of pride for my community and calls to me as if I'm being addressed directly, as if it were my name. So this deaf person is saying exactly what I've been saying on this podcast about the sense of blind pride 
that I feel. So it is wonderful to me to read this article from a kindred spirit who happens to be deaf, who feels the same way that I do about blind pride. Now it continues. So it always stings when I'm reminded that for many, the word deaf has little to do with what I love most. In fact, its connotations are almost exclusively negative. She then quotes a series of headlines that all have in them have all fallen on deaf ears. She continues, this kind of ableist language is omnipresent in conversation, making a dumb choice, turning a blind eye to a problem, acting crazy, calling a boss psychopathic, having a bipolar day. And for the most part, people who utter these phrases aren't intending to hurt anyone. More commonly, they don't have any idea they're engaging in anything hurtful at all. However, for disabled people like me, she says, these common words can be micro-assaults. She says, first, these words give an inaccurate picture of what being disabled actually means. It then quotes a wheelchair user as saying, to describe someone as crippled by something is to say that they are limited or trapped, perhaps. But those aren't how I experience my being. Using disability as a shorthand for something negative or inferior reinforces negative attitudes and actions and fuels the larger systems of oppression in place. We build a world with the language we use, and for as long as we're comfortable using this language, we continue to build and reinforce disabled structures. So I will try and link to this article in the show notes. And for those listening live, I'll send a tweet out with this link from the Mosin at Large account so that hopefully you can find it too and read it if you want. When this was sent to me by Rhonda, I guess in response to the discussions that we've been having, I was just so thrilled that the BBC, which has such a wide reach, is publishing such an important article like this. It gives me hope. We're dragging the chain here in New Zealand, but seeing the BBC publish something like this does give me hope. And I know that the BBC is having quite a discussion internally at the moment about the use of language in a disability context, and that is very encouraging. And that just goes to show what I've always said about advocacy. Advocacy is a long-term game, and sometimes young people ask me, what has kept me going with all the laws that I've had changed in this country, some of which have had a global impact, and they say, you know, how do you keep going? And I say that a lot of advocacy really feels like you're banging your head against a brick wall a lot of the time, but every so often, the wall moves just a little bit. It's often a gradual thing, but you're not going to change perceptions and attitudes, and in this case, language unless you speak up and speak out. Now, Stephen Hudson is going to talk about this at some length, but first, we'll get through a brief comment on tech. Hi there, Jonathan, says Stefan. First, I wanted to answer your question about text-to-speech engines. I've used eloquence for many, many years via JAWS and find it difficult to use anything else for daily computer use. Text-to-speech engines based around natural voices just don't seem to have the same performance. It's entirely possible that I simply haven't given voices such as the vocalizer expressive options available for JAWS much of a chance, but I find that such voices don't perform well at fast speeds. 
they sound great at slower speeds, so I imagine that they would be great for reading articles or books at what might be considered a normal speaking rate. As unlikely as this might be to happen, I do dread the day when Freedom Scientific might retire eloquence as an option in favour of modern text-to-speech technologies due to its age. There'd be a mini-riot, I think. People love eloquence, Stefan, so hopefully we won't ever see that. And wouldn't it be good if this nuance acquisition by Microsoft gives eloquence a new lease of life? I would love that. He continues, it's the voice I've always associated with using a computer. While I'm sure I could eventually get used to a new voice, I'd rather use what's always worked for me. The other thing, see, I told you we'd get back to it. The other thing I wanted to finally comment on after a few weeks of really thinking about it is ableist language. I must confess that I'm truly struggling with understanding the concept. And to be quite honest, that makes me wonder if there's something very wrong with me. Putting how I feel about this into words is also quite daunting, but I'll do my best, hopefully without offending anyone in the process. I first started thinking about this when I read your blog post about the use of the word blind to describe ignorance. My first reaction went something like this. What? Seriously? Are you kidding me? Why is this offensive? This is just silly. Blind has more than one meaning. As a blind person myself, I've never been offended by the many uses of the word blind. I also have severe hearing loss, and I've never been offended by the many uses of the word deaf either. That doesn't mean that other people don't get offended, but this still didn't compute. When things don't compute, I get rather frustrated. I like it when things make sense. I pondered this for days, all the while wondering what in the world the problem was. Then, I saw your tweet of the article about ableist language in general. This prompted me to look a little deeper into the concept. What I found was quite shocking, and I still don't know what to think for sure. This goes beyond blindness, as some may already know. If we really want to be an inclusive society, we shouldn't be saying things like crazy, insane, or lame yeah, just inserting my own comment here, lame is one of my real pet peeves uh, and retarded, of course, which you do hear quite a few young people using to mean ridiculous or unexplainable or whatever. Uh, Stefan continues, we shouldn't be calling people stupid, idiots or morons. Apparently, we can leave out dumb and weird as well. And we shouldn't even say something falls on deaf ears. Saying someone or something is crippled is also out. This is because, at some point, all of these words and phrases described or were based on people with disabilities, and they eventually worked their way into our language as common slang terms that most of us use without realising that they can do a lot of harm. What we should be doing is saying words that mean exactly what they mean. Saying something is ridiculous or annoying. Call someone foolish. Say you're ignorant, which I do anyway. Now, you'd think that any sensible, caring person would simply understand and do their best to phase out these words and phrases from their vocabulary. But I was left more baffled than before. I think this is because I've always believed that context makes all the difference. Plus, I know that words can have several different meanings depending on the context in which they're used. For example, 
If someone says something such as, he has turned a blind eye to what was going on, I don't associate that with someone who is physically blind. I associate it with someone who's choosing to be unaware of what's going on around them. Both sighted and blind people can be unaware of what's going on around them, and it doesn't always have to do with their physical sight or lack thereof. If someone says something is crazy, I don't associate that with a mentally ill person. Crazy can also mean unreasonable, ridiculous, nonsensical, all over the place, etc. I really blame English for having this problem of words having many different meanings, but I have to wonder if other languages have this problem as well. Maybe some bilingual listeners can answer that one. I'm all for being inclusive and doing my best not to offend people, but sometimes I wonder how far all this really has to go before it becomes, well, ridiculous and unreasonable. These days it seems we have to be extremely, extremely careful about what we say or how we say things for fear of offending someone in the slightest way. It's almost as if having a thick skin doesn't mean anything anymore, and we're teaching kids that it's okay to control what other people can say just because they're offended, even if no offence was meant. People even have to be careful about what they say outside the workplace for fear of being fired from their jobs. To be very honest, and again I do apologise if anyone is offended by this, I don't really believe that trying to get rid of these sorts of words and phrases will do much good in the end. For example, are blind people all ignorant? No, but unfortunately some are. This can be because of how they were raised at home, how they were treated by their teachers in school, and even due to developmental delays. If someone encounters a blind person with other disabilities, they might think all blind people are like that. Even if no one uses the word blind to refer to ignorance, they still might think that. As you often point out, education is the key. People need to be shown that blindness doesn't automatically make someone ignorant, not have language policed to the point where they have to worry about offending someone every second unless they change their entire vocabulary. Policing language won't teach people that blind people aren't ignorant. It'll just tell them that they have to be careful not to offend the blind people by misusing the word blind. Now, if someone uses this sort of language with intent to offend, then I think that's different. Thanks for expressing that viewpoint, Stefan. I really appreciate that. And I do have a number of thoughts on this, as you can appreciate. I guess I would start with a question. Is it okay for anyone to say anything they like, and it's really up to the recipient of what's being said not to be offended? Now, I suppose extreme free speech advocates may advance that view. But the one that immediately comes to mind is, of course, uh, several racial slurs, one of which starts with N, and I would never use that even by way of example. Now, there was a time when that was in common usage. Now, if you use that term, you are shunned, and quite rightly so. At least in this country, I have heard people being called out for using the word retarded to describe something that they think is ridiculous not acceptable, that it doesn't make sense. And they say, what, this is a retarded idea. So if that one's not okay, why is it okay to perpetuate the misappropriation of words like blind and deaf? 
Now, I don't think you can blame English for this. I don't think this is exclusively an English issue. You can go all the way back to the Bible, for example, to make this language, actually. And, of course, the Bible is not originally an English document. I would refer you to Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, which, depending on the translation, basically says, don't bother with them, disregard them, let them alone, depending on the version you use. They be blind leaders of the blind. And when the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into a ditch. So, you know, it's been around for quite a long time, the old ableist language. So it's nothing to do with the quirks of a given language and everything to do with choosing over many, many centuries to associate different impairments with negative characteristics that have nothing actually to do with the impairment itself. I have seen surveys over the years that indicate that blindness is more feared by some people than cancer, AIDS, and even death itself. There are people out there who really do think it would be better to be dead than blind. These people are in our communities, they're employers, they're people who can potentially hold us back from self-actualization. And so when we continue to use words like blind to mean something other than the absence of sight, we perpetuate those stereotypes. You say that they have two meanings, but that's only because we have allowed them to have two meanings, because the non-disabled people who have created their disabling society have used their privileged position to perpetuate the disablement through negative language. But the important thing, the thing that should give us hope, is that minorities evolve, minorities speak out, minorities don't have to stay in the fringes forever. Things do change. It wasn't that long ago, for example, that homosexuality was illegal in many Western countries. And now, in many Western countries, not only has homosexuality been decriminalized, and it was just absolutely outrageous that it ever was criminalized, but gay marriage is now the law of the land. Now, that's real progress. Attitudes have shifted dramatically. And I think that we as a disability community or a blind community, whatever you choose to be a part of, can learn a lot from that example. Similarly, language that used to denigrate women. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that it was a pretty common expression, at least here, to say something like, I'll stop being a girl about this. And that was a pejorative term. And understandably, women have got up and say, don't use the term girl like that. And of course, men who have historically been in a privileged position and don't like being challenged sometimes come back and say, don't be so sensitive. The word girl has two meanings, and it's all about the context. People know that when we say, are you behaving like a girl about this? We don't actually mean a female person. Girl has two meanings. It's nonsense. It does not. It's all about negatively portraying a particular group of people. Now, there will be some backlash as more and more people start to talk about our ableist language and call it out and challenge it. And you're never going to get unanimity on an issue like this. There's always going to be people in the community affected who say, ah, stop being politically correct and haven't we got bigger things to worry about and and on and on. But for all the people who have a dismissive, negative reaction about that and try to shut it down, there will be some people who say, you know what, there's a point here, there's a valid point here, and, and I should be more careful not to denigrate people. 
But I appreciate your insight and the fact that you're thinking about this. So good on you for writing in. The question was, have we got any funny or embarrassing travel stories? I was flying back from one of the CSUN technology conferences and a person got in beside me, a lady. She was all on for a big chat. I was not all on for a big chat. And I said, I sorry, I difficult for me English because I not... Uh, so I pretend. So that was fine. She stopped talking. And an hour or so into the flight, the drinks trolley came round. Oh, oh, my God. Yeah, now you're the, trapped. And the air hostess says, can I get you? And I said, could I have a Carlsberg, please? Oh. <laughs> In my Irish accent. Subscribe to Blank Eyes Chat wherever you get your podcast. Always read the lip. May cause hysteria. Terms and conditions do not apply. During the beginning of the pandemic, we had regular check-ins from people telling us how they were getting on around the world, and particularly from a blindness perspective, because we've talked about some really important things on this show, like how difficult it is to social distance, particularly when you have a guide dog, the various isolating factors around this pandemic from a blindness perspective. And now vaccine programs are being rolled out around the world. I scan for a lot of blindness-related news, and I'm really troubled to see how many people in the United States are having difficulty booking their vaccines because of inaccessible websites. That is inexcusable. It absolutely is for something so critical as a vaccine. How have you got on around the world? whether you're in the United States or some other country, if you've got an online booking system to get your vaccine, have you had trouble accessing it? And how's the vaccine thing going for you? Really important that we all get it, that we do our bit. But it also does raise some questions that come up in various guises to do with the medical profession. I have found over the years that the medical profession can be quite hard for blind people to deal with because even when you are talking to a medical professional about something that has zilch, nada, zero to do with your blindness, they want to bring it back to blindness because they're sort of interested or they see you as a medical case. They see your blindness as a medical case. So sometimes even visiting a medical professional to do something like getting a vaccine can be a bit daunting because of the way that you're treated. It seems that in medical school, few people are shown how to do even something as basic as sighted guide where that's required and put people at their ease when dealing with disabled people. So now that many countries have reached the point where the vaccine programs are rolling out, how has that gone for you. Did you feel any side effects? You know, for those of us who are still waiting, our vaccine program is rolling out a bit slowly in New Zealand. And I suppose people are mostly a bit chill about that because we don't have any COVID in the community and we're very, very fortunate in that regard. So I don't mind waiting a bit longer for my vaccine. Did you experience any side effects? How long did they last? What were they like? But obviously, it really is important for us to get that vaccination, for us to all do our bit. Hey, Jonathan says this email, it's your man in the know, Daniel Semro, once again. Gee, that's a good slogan. I just want to drop you a line to report on my experience getting the first dose of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. 
Oh man, I hope you sang Living in a Material World. That's a great Moderna song. Anyway, I'll first start with this warning. Your arm will hurt, and I mean hurt badly. See, I think it does vary. Not everybody experiences the same side effects. But anyway, this is Daniel's experience. Now to the good stuff. The doctor and pharmacy staff could not have been nicer. As the vaccine was being administered, the doctor continually made polite conversation and made both my mom and I laugh. Always a good thing when you're getting a shot, I think. It helps focus less on the pain. The shot was also very quick. My mom said she barely felt a thing, so I felt it the most. I get my second dose on May the 10th, so there'll be another report then. I'll conclude by encouraging everyone to get the vaccine. You'll protect not only yourself, but others as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Daniel. I will probably get a video of me getting my vaccine done so I can send it to staff uh, and say I'm getting it done. I hope that you will too. In New Zealand, they have made the decision to prioritise disabled people. The logic being that Disabled people are often vulnerable to catching COVID. And also, you know, I felt a bit bad about jumping the queue. I really don't like using my blindness as an excuse to queue jump anywhere. But in thinking about it, you know, I've talked on the show before about our really awful COVID tracing app in this country. It is a disgrace because it's based on QR codes, and it was based exclusively on QR codes for quite some time. Now we do have the Apple and Google Contacts Tracing API, which is really good, but they do encourage you still to scan in, and you're sort of treated a bit like a pariah if you don't. And there is a manual entry function, which is how a lot of blind people are doing it. You go into a building, you're not sure where the QR code is. So as soon as you get a chance, you can dictate into the app where you are. And it's kind of like keeping a diary entry. Some people are repurposing the Swarm app for the same purpose. If you can check in on Swarm, you're just keeping a record there of where you've been And of course, you may become the mayor because not many people are out and about using Swarm. I think Swarm has kind of gone out of fashion anyway. But if people don't see you scanning the code, they get really angsty with you. And you feel like you're sitting there having to justify yourself. And I can't count the times now that I've had to say to someone, I'm not going to mess with the QR code because it just takes too long. It's fiddly. But I have made a manual entry. But everybody's turning into the scanning police. It's really like a pain in the butt going anywhere now. And they could have used some of those really cool omnidirectional barcode technologies that are out there now so that you don't have to point your camera directly at the code. If they had actually consulted with people who know what they're talking about in the accessibility field, they could have designed a QR-based system that is far more accessible to a wider range of people than it is, because it's not just blind people who've been inconvenienced by this. If you're in a wheelchair and you can't reach the code to scan it, and because it's such a directional thing, then you are also out of luck. But a more omnidirectional form of QR code technology could have solved that problem 
for wheelchair users as well. You know, you get somebody, if, you, if you're trying to social distance and somebody sort of has to get close to you to show you where to point the phone or they want to take your phone off you, which drives me crazy, the fact that they think that they can just snatch your phone away to scan the code without consent. And of course, then you inevitably get into the discussion, oh, did you know your phone isn't actually on? Because they look at your phone and the screen curtain's on. And then you have to go into this big justification about how you use your phone, an explanation about how you use your phone. And all you're trying to do is to get into a building to transact business or enjoy some entertainment or whatever. So we've messed up in this country. We've shown contempt and disregard for disabled people, and it's simply unacceptable. So on that basis, I think there is some justification for saying actually blind people and other disabled people should be a priority and we will be. So I expect to be getting my vaccine quite soon. And this was an argument that was advanced in an article that I was reading probably from a couple of months back now in the United States where somebody was arguing there that because of these social distancing challenges, blind people should have been moved up the queue. So I'd be interested to know what you think of that. And you can drop me an email to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com with an audio attachment, or you can write it down, the listener line number in the US, 864-60-BOSEN, 864-606-6736. Hi, Jonathan. A couple of episodes ago, I shared my experiences as a participant in the corona vaccine trial of the CureVac vaccine. And meanwhile, I also received the second injection and I had the first control visit. Now, if you remember my earlier contribution, the problem was that when I had to sign the informed consent, I had to write down my name and the date, which I'm hardly able to do. It takes me a lot of energy. And in the end, I just did it so that I could participate. Now, what happened during the control visit, it turned out that they had made a revision of the experiment protocol and all participants had to sign an addendum to the original informed consent. And meanwhile, the doctor who was dealing with me had also consulted his superiors on what he should do in such cases. And it turns out that there are international guidelines for a situation where a participant cannot sign the informed consent or write down his name and the date. And in that case, the guidelines apparently stipulate that the participants can only provide informed consent and sign it or whatever in the presence of an independent witness. So whereas a sighted person can just write down the name and the date and place a signature, which is a small thing, When I want to participate in a medical experiment as a blind participant, I can't sign it myself, but they need to call an independent witness who needs to confirm that I provide informed consent voluntarily. So in other words, if the independent witness thinks for whatever reason that I may not be providing informed consent voluntarily, and one of the reasons he could think that is because of prejudices he has against blind people. If he thinks, oh, blind people are ignorant and not really capable of taking care of their own decisions, then 
he may emotionally feel like, oh, it is so difficult and I'm in a difficult situation here. Well, I'd rather just be on the safe side and say, oh, I'm not really sure. So if he feels like that and acts that way for whatever reason and says that maybe, just maybe my informed consent is not voluntary, then the direct consequence is that I will be excluded from the study. So essentially, a sighted person just needs to convince the doctor that he is providing informed consent. I essentially also need to convince the independent witness, and that is the outcome of international protocols, apparently. And so they called an independent witness who witnessed me signing the addendum, but what happened then was really humiliating. I had to re-sign my original informed consent in the present of that witness, as though the original signature was somehow less valuable, I don't know, when in fact I had already written down the name and date on both the addendum and the original signature, so I felt a bit humiliated there. And I think I'm actually going to file a complaint. I totally understand that the people organizing this study did the best they could and were limited by the applicable guidelines and I'm sure they didn't have any bad intentions. But the point is that this kind of procedure is really putting extra barriers for blind people to participate in medical trials. And there is a perfectly valid alternative to this procedure with an informed witness. You can simply video record the oral informed consent. An oral informed consent is just as valid as a written informed consent. And if you video record it, the camera replaces the paper, right? It makes a record of my informed consent, but it does not judge whether or not I'm voluntarily giving that consent. That judgment is left to the doctor and maybe whoever is going to view it if my informed consent is ever challenged. But I don't depend on an independent witness to agree that I provide informed consent voluntarily. Maybe the reason that they insist on me writing the name and date myself is that then they could consult a graphologist to check the authenticity of my signature or something. But a video recording provides at least the same or probably many more avenues for checking the authenticity and voluntary nature of my informed consent. So I think this procedure should really be altered. And I think I'm going to file a complaint not because I want to cause trouble to the people organizing this study, but because I do want people to be aware of the way those guidelines affect participants. And I hope that they will be changed. And why it's so important that those guidelines are changed is because if we systematically exclude or put up barriers against blind people or other groups which keep them from participating in medical studies, it means they are not represented in such studies. In some cases, that is acceptable. I mean, if there is a study in which they have a visual test to measure my reaction speed, 
I know there are non-visual alternatives to testing reaction speeds. And if the reaction speed test were part of an exam that provided me access to a certain occupation, then the organization administering the exam should be required to provide me an alternative to show that my reaction speed in this case is appropriate. But in the context of a medical study, you need all participants to take the exact same test because you cannot compare the results otherwise. And so there's no option for a blind person to take an alternative test. You should just exclude him if that reaction speed test is important. But in many studies, such as the corona vaccine trial, there is no reason to think that blindness would affect the outcome of the measurements that are made for every participant. And in other words, blindness is not part of the model of the study. But the fact that blindness is not part of the model of the study does not mean that we can exclude blindness as a potential factor somehow influencing the effectiveness of the medication in question. Now this is getting very philosophical but if you are familiar with the setup of scientific studies you will understand my point that if we systematically exclude blind people from all medical studies that it may be that medications are generally less effective for blind people than they would be for the rest of the population. So defending the right to take part in medical studies is not just about defending our right to be equal members of society who get opportunities to attain the social and financial benefits that come with participating in medical research. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosen.org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Mosin at Large Podcast. Thank you very much for all the comments that I've received, some of them private and some of them for the podcast about the episode on self-improvement and particularly focusing on meditation. I'm glad it helped so many people. Here's a uh, email from Tim who says, when you began the sound of the sea at the end of your meditation podcast, I was immediately flown to the outer banks of North Carolina. This is my favorite vacation slash retreat location, and I realized how much I have missed it. Please tell me where you got that particular recording, hopefully without the bell, because it by itself covered me with joy and peace. Thank you very much for the very valuable podcast. Well, thank you, Tim. And I wish I could remember where I got that from. And the reason why I'm so vague about it is that that's ending bits where I did the meditation there stemmed from a tribute that I did to George Harrison. And I'm just trying to think when I would have run that tribute. It might have been for a Mosin Explosion show quite a long time ago when we were on the air, maybe on his birthday one year. 
And I did that, and I played a lot of Beatles music that George had written or been a key figure in, and George Harrison solo material. And as part of that, I did that guided meditation. So it was ages ago, and I can't remember where I got that. I do have a library of BBC sound effects. It's possible I got it there. But it is a nice soothing sound to be transplanted to the sea, isn't it? I'm so sorry that I can't be more specific about it, but I genuinely don't remember. Peter says, Jonathan, thank you so much for the latest podcast on meditation. In my life, I had tried several times to develop a practice, including a two-week course at Copan in Nepal, a six-week mindful-based stress reduction MBSR at a hospital in Miami, but it was not until I heard your podcast on the FitMind app that I started in again, and it had really been a help. In the pandemic in Florida, I developed an evening practice using FitMind every evening, but then I fell off the wagon again as the pandemic craziness continued. Then NOAA, who I work for, started a program called Mindful NOAA, where volunteers provide 10 to 20-minute meditations over Google Meet. NOAA management supports this as part of wellness, so that has me on a more regular schedule. So I was surprised and pleased to hear your talk today. Great. I really appreciate all you do for us, including all the discussion on Braille with an uppercase B, equipment and software. Thanks for all the info on Apple failings and the hints and kinks. I had forgotten about the screen reader function. I think that is speak screen we're talking about. It sounds much better than the default Siri voice. You may be interested in the podcast called Astray. It is sort of a true crime podcast discussing foreign spiritual seekers who have disappeared in India, especially in Rishikesh, One episode discusses the Beatles' visit to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and what went wrong with the visit. I did not realize that several songs on the White Album satirized other folks at the ashram. It describes well the perils of organized religion. Okay, enough rambling for me. When is Bonnie going to do her own podcast? Bet it would have a lot about horses. Best wishes from the crazy USA, says Peter. Well, thank you, Peter. That is a really interesting message about your meditation endeavors. And yes, the White Album is quite full of things that were written in Rishikesh or inspired by it. Sexy Sadie, for example, which is a John track, was originally called Maharishi. So if you do the substitute, you get Maharishi, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone. Bungalow Bill was another one inspired by that. Dear Prudence, of course, is about Prudence Pharaoh. Mia Pharaoh's sister, who got really into the meditation and wouldn't come out. Yeah, so there are quite a few tracks there, specifically about Rishikesh and many written there. It's an interesting album, the White Album. And there is some debate, or there was some debate among Beatles circles about whether anything really went wrong at all. George always felt that the Maharishi hadn't done anything wrong. And that the story was fabricated by Magic Alex, who was this dude in the Beatles circle who was just quite crazy, really, and not particularly reputable, and was jealous of the place that the Maharishi had, particularly in John's affections or circle. 
So who knows, really? But that's interesting. Thank you for the podcast recommendation. I will check it out. And it's really encouraging to see businesses getting into offering meditation and mindfulness courses. As for when Bonnie is going to do her own podcast, I ask this question on a regular basis, a regular basis. I offer to even set up a little alternative mini studio for Bonnie so she can record her own podcasts and stuff and give her some training. But she keeps saying, I'm not sure I want to do a podcast. I think it's a shame because she can talk. She can just she could just switch, press record and just talk for two hours or whatever <laughs> and probably not have to do any editing. I think she'd do a great podcast. And I do have some ideas about what the podcast might cover, but it's not something that seems to be a priority for her. We should ask her about this sometime on the bulletin. Kevin says, such a wonderful meditation episode. Keep up your good work. Here are my contributions. I use an app called Waking Up, created by Sam Harris. There's an iOS app and a web version as well. And that is at wakingup.com. Yes, I've used that as well. It's quite expensive, I think. That was my only concern. Uh, but it's okay. It's uh, it, it's a good app as well. Uh, he continues, the app features daily meditations, meditation theories, conversations with well-known teachers and thinkers, as well as Sam Harris Meditations Thoughts Q&A Sessions. Waking Up app by Sam Harris is entirely free for those who can't afford it. It's just an email away. Now, that is interesting. I'm not sure if I knew that. So you can go to, he says, wakingup.com slash request dash free dash account. All right. Well, good. Here are some of my favorite meditation podcasts. One, the Fit Mind podcast, secular-based, science-driven meditation podcast. Of course, we've had Liam on this show. Two, Meditative Story. It combines human stories with meditative prompts, beautiful audio, and writing. Three, Animal Meditations. Guided meditations on the physical and environmental experience of being different animals. Four, Tara Brach. Five, Waking Up Podcast, 6 10% Happier Podcast. Fantastic. So that will keep us going for a while. Thanks so much for those recommendations and also for the tip about the uh, Waking Up app. It's good to know that they are doing that. Rebecca Skipper is writing in about a few of the things we're talking about this week. She says, I would like to see eloquence on the iPhone, but I feel bad for Code Factory and anyone who has purchased TTS voices already. My concern is that there may be less competition in the TTS market and competition can make services better. I hope Apple announces an iPad mini. I would like to learn how to use the iPad but I do not like the larger screens. I have had many uncomfortable experiences with physicians. They either ask too many questions about how I complete daily activities or they will speak to my family member and not me. The situation is better when physicians talk with me directly in private. My family know that I am capable of advocating for myself but the ignorance of medical professionals is inexcusable. 
The other problem I have is lack of accessible medical forms. They are either in PDF documents that can't be completed online or are only in print. Hey, Jonathan, this is John West, um, John Wesley Smith from Hallsville, Missouri. And um, I wanted to pass along a sage piece of advice that I got from a school bus driver uh, when I went to public school for my last couple of years of school back in the 70s. He said that when you find, um, in, in my case, you know, when you find a woman who accepts you as you are, marry her. And so that's what I did. And that may sound overly simplistic, uh, but you have to remember it goes both ways, and it has to be maintained. And uh, we've made it work for 38 years. Just thought I'd pass that along for whatever it's worth. Good on you, John, and congratulations on those 38 years. Robin Christopherson writes, just to add my story, read Dating When Blind. I never tried dating. I wouldn't have known where to start. But rather try to be as outward-facing as possible and engage in all the community activities I could and just hope, with all my fingers and toes crossed, that I would meet someone one day. Being blind, though, I never felt able to assume that I would. For me, the luckiest of meetings happened in 1998 at a regional conference for a charity here in the UK called the Samaritans. I had been a volunteer for many years, and Judith, my now wonderful wife, had too. If it wasn't for a friend, who was also a volunteer, offering to give me and my guide dog Jolly a lift to this conference, we'd never have met. Judith was volunteering at a branch many miles away from Warwick, where I lived, and so we'd almost certainly never have crossed paths otherwise. She said it was my dog that initially made her say hello. Jolly happened to be off the lead at the time, so it was a surprise when, after we'd been chatting for a bit, she noticed the harness. In those days, I could just about see where people were, so always made my best attempt at looking at where I guessed their face to be. Luckily, it didn't put her off in the slightest but then she is one of the loveliest people you could possibly imagine. We now have two amazing children, well, adults, who also, extremely luckily, don't have my eye condition. So my advice to people looking for the perfect partner is to go out there. Go out and engage in as many activities or events you can where the sort of person you'd like to meet might be. This isn't why I was a Samaritan, of course, but the fact that Judith was too meant that we already had a lot in common, and, thankfully, she wasn't put off by my being blind. I also feel that engaging in acts of service to the community bring their own rewards. Of course, there's no guarantee that this will work, but conversely, if you never get out there, either digitally or, ideally, physically, you almost certainly won't meet a special someone. On the subject of the dynamics of our marriage, I personally feel that we are equals and both have different strengths. I certainly think it's possible to have a relationship with someone who is sighted without there being any ongoing challenges. When we walk together, we hold hands like any other couple, and I do my share of jobs around the house. I think that being on a good salary helps too, as I'm not so naive as to think 
that my feeling of self-worth as a blind person isn't in some part reinforced by the ability to be the majority breadwinner. I wish everyone the very best of luck with similar lightning strikes, which, of course, happen much less often in the home. On a completely different topic, you can use VLC to play podcasts, but it isn't ideal as you can't play anything other than the current episode, unless you have the URL to a specific episode, that is. The easiest way is to have the feed URL on the clipboard, open VLC, and paste it right into the main window and press enter. It will start playing the latest episode immediately. You can then use the normal keystrokes of spacebar to play slash pause, up and down arrows to increase and decrease volume, left and right arrows to skip back and forward by about 10 seconds or so, and control left slash right arrow to jump by whole minutes. Pasting the URL to a specific episode would play that one, of course, but you still have no ability to skip back or forward to other episodes or subscribe, etc. Do you have dreams that you want to achieve but are scared to do so due to self-doubt? fear and other people's criticism i have just what you need you need a dose of the living the dream with curveball podcast where i interview guests that will motivate and inspire you to stop at nothing to achieve your dreams and always remember if you believe you can achieve Hey everyone, this is Kevin from Malaysia and today I'm going to show you two apps which narrate journalism. Both this app, uh, which are Curio and AUDM, curates and narrates long-form articles uh, that's being produced and voiced by professional voiceovers. So first up, Curio. Curio. You can learn more about Curio um, by going to curio.io. This developer or company is very committed to its accessibility and you can pretty much contact them and suggest improvements and enhancements. Um, the commitment to accessibility can be readily seen when I show you the app. Uh, let me go. There are four tabs uh, in this app. It starts from for you, tab one of four. For you, discover tab two of four. Selected library tab three of four. Settings tab four of four. And end with settings. For you, tab. So let me go to the for you tab where you can see a special screen which houses latest and curated articles specially for you. For you. Okay. John Morbord is timely. We thought Revolution was like a Hollywood movie from Financial Times, published March 29th, 2021, 17 minutes. Actions available. So let's say this article, I can use the rotor to see uh, what are the actions that I can perform. Play. I can play the article. Like, dislike, download. I can download it. Share. I can share to friends. Add to queue. And I can add to queue, which I do always um, to curate my own queue. And I also can bookmark uh, when I like the article, the data maybe will be sent to Curio to show that I love the article and um, 
the algorithm will be tuned to what I like. But this bookmark will allow me to bookmark it to refer back in my library. Activate default. Look closer. The power of solitude. Playlist with four stories. One hour. This is um, a curated playlist. There are some curated playlists on this app. Playlist is a very experimental feature that I've started quite recently. So let's say when I go into this playlist, the power of solitude. This is the name of the playlist. The of being alone as a woman. Well, this is a description of the playlist. Button. So this button is an unlabeled, which says that you can add it to your library, if I'm not mistaken. She wants to be alone. From Yun, published March 21st, 2021, 32 minutes. Actions available. So this is the first article on the playlist. I can either press play on outside of the playlist by using the rotor or play one by one here or select the article that I, I want to listen from this playlist. Let me go out from the playlist. You, I'm pressing the back button. So let me show you the discover tab. So this is the second tab. Search, search field. New stories. So this is the news stories section where I can browse the 50 most recent news stories by pressing the more button. More button. YVU is still wary of America from The Economist. Published page one. Most played. More button. Most played. So this is the most played section. All the while I'm swiping to the right. More button. One. Ask two. Three. Browse. So this browse section where when I swipe right there are two sections or subsections. Categories and publishers. Uh, it is defaulted to publishers, where all the publishers are listed here. Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The Guardian, Wired, Button, Eon, Button, MIT, Technop, Vulture, The Cut, The Washington Post, 1840, Bloomberg, Bloomberg Business, Scientific American, Button. So there are many publishers, so I can go to, say, Scientific American. Scientific American, Scientific American covers the advances in research and discovery that are changing our understanding. So this is the description, and I swipe right. 12 stories. It says there are 12 stories. The mathematics of how connections become global from scientific and underappreciated danger. So I can play each one, and the nice thing is when you on the autoplay on the settings, um, it will act on the context on where you are on the app. So for example, if you start playing from the playlist like this now, it will continue the play from the playlist. If I start play from the Scientific American Publisher area, it will continue from there, which is very cool. That means you can listen to the entire publisher or playlist or queue or tab that you are in without doing anything by just activating the autoplay setting and just press play from wherever you want. This is pretty cool. And the player, which is on the bottom before the For You tab, For you, this is the player. You can use the rotor to play or go in. Selected. Now playing. Button. One, up next. Button. Two, so two. there are two screens. Uh, now playing and up next. So we are on the now player settings now. This is the title that I'm playing. Zero minutes, 30 seconds of 21 minutes, 28 seconds. Adjustable. Rewind to beginning. Button. Skip backwards. But pause. Button. Skip forward. Next track. Button. Current playback speed 1.5. Button. So I can adjust it. Everything is quite accessible. Dislike. Button. Like. Button. Sleep timer. Button. Button. They have they have sleep sleep button. timers and and I can like and dislike the article. Like, dislike. Current playback speed 1.5. Button. Let me tell you that Curio is an app um, which curates many uh, articles that's related to curiosity, science, or journalism that provokes thinking. The next app that I'm going to show you is AUDM or AUDM as voiceover pronounced. 
This company is recently uh, bought by New York Times and it also pretty much do the uh, exact job done by Curio. But the difference is it focuses more on narrative journalism rather than journalism that's curious for big ideas and curiosity. Uh, this app is pretty much usable but have some accessibility flaws and as far as I'm concerned, the app developer is quite hard to be contacted, but I think if collectively we do our part, we can make this app more accessible. Let me briefly show this app. One main difference about this app is it focuses more on very, very long uh, form journalism. Like you can listen to articles starting from uh, op-ed journalism starts from three minutes to uh, articles around two hours mark. Auden, the New Yorker, 40 minutes, Department of Science, where the wild things go, Catherine Schultz, how animals navigate the world. Image, Bijou Boro EFP by Getty Images, narrated by Julia Wellen, April 05, 2021 issue. So the name Julia Wellen is quite familiar to audiobook fans. Um, this app have many popular audiobook narrators narrating the long-form articles. And as you can see, it read the summary of the articles or sometime issue and uh, narrates the time of the article. So unlike Curio, you can't use rotor, but you can use swipe. So the swipes to one article to another is about three times. So the first one is, this is the play button. This is the share button. And this is the add to queue. Uh, for some strange reason, you must press this add to queue twice for each article to add it to queue. For example, add. if I press it once add. and twice. So now it says tick, indicating that the article is now on our queue. The New Yorker, 40 minutes, our local correspondent, guns down, Ian Frazier, with a number of shootings, that's right, but, but, button. The New Yorker, 60 minutes, profiles, pass imperfect, Rachel, but, but, button. The New Yorker, 30 minutes, annals of astronomy, but. So, um, in this app, there are four tabs, uh, beneath it, uh, which is discover, Q, tab, two of four, Q tab, playing tab, playing tab, account, tab, and account tab. So on this discover tab, um, there are all the articles from, uh, the most recent to the oldest one, which if you can see, vertical scroll bar, 2183 pages, zero, 2183 pages, massive. But the good thing is, you can filter it by author, by publication, and you can do a search. And when you do the refine, you can sort the article. And filter it according to duration and narrator. So um, this app is slightly more popular than Curio, and it uses many professional narrators that we know by name, um, and also uh, publications that are in this um, app. Uh, they are delivering many um, great journalism and more uh, lengthy articles. So happy exploring. And I hope this can be your new commute media where you can listen to many thought-provoking articles and big ideas delivered straight to your ear. And let me tell you that um, Curio is free to use initially where you can listen to 10 articles per month without subscribing. And the free trial is very good. 
and you can uh, affordably subscribe to monthly and annual subscription and AUDM unfortunately is not free to uh, free to use in in which you only have 3 days of free trial and you need to subscribe to monthly or annual subscription to use this app Jonathan Mosen Mosen at large podcast Here's Andy on the subject of Apple's voice control, he says, Hi, Jonathan, is it me or is voice control very slow to respond? I used it for a while, but got tired of waiting for it to do things. I may revisit it just to see whether it has improved since it first emerged. I have not seen a problem with this, Andy, but it could be relating to the phone you have. You didn't say in the message, and I don't recall whether you've ever told me what iPhone you have. But the file is downloaded to your computer. So when you do voice control on the iPhone, it's not going out to the internet. It's not phoning home in that regard. So it should be quite responsive. That makes me think if you have got a problem, it could be relating to the CPU on your phone. Perhaps it is in need of a reboot or something to get itself in order. But I do not ever have it lag or anything like that. It is in really good shape for me. Perhaps others who are using voice control can comment on how snappy or otherwise they find it. To Cumbria we go now. And it's Henry and Angela who say, Hi, Jonathan. We trust all is well with you. And a big thank you for a wonderful and informative show. I wonder if any of your listeners can recommend suitable headphones to wear with behind-the-ear hearing aids. I don't like using a neck loop and wonder if there's another solution out there. That's a good question. It might depend on the hearing aids that you have, because certainly this is where a direct audio input option is so useful, where you can just plug your hearing aids directly in with a 3.5 headphone jack. And I do recall, I haven't investigated this for a long time, but I think I might have seen headphones that are designed to sort of clip on to hearing aids, to behind the ear hearing aids. So if anybody knows of a product that might work with BTE aids, please let us know. It would be very informative. And also we have, on another topic, does New Zealand have a vaccination program for COVID-19? Take care and stay safe. Yes, we do. It is rolling out quite slowly because we don't have any COVID-19 in the community at the moment, but we can't sustain that forever and keep our borders closed. So we are starting the vaccination program Border workers are going first and essential workers in the healthcare area who are at risk. Interestingly, and I think this is something worthy of discussion because I scan a lot of blindness news and I see that some US states are making this case as well. Disabled people are being prioritized as well. So Bonnie and I will be entitled to get our vaccinations before the general population. They're doing disabled people first of all ages, well, adults anyway, So that's an interesting approach that the government here has taken. But it looks like the vaccination program in the UK, you know, while there might have been some stumbles at the beginning there, uh, is going great guns. We've got an email from somebody who I don't know who it is because all I see in the from field is their email address, even though the email says I can use their name, but there is no name in the email. So I shall just read it. What backup service do you think is user friendly for JAWS? I heard of one called QA Backup. However, I cannot find their website. Well, we will open this one up. I have a backup strategy of my own, 
which is that all my important documents and media are stored on my Synology NAS, which has a RAID configuration, so it's stored on two drives, and then that data is backed up to a mixture of Dropbox and OneDrive. So I've got two levels of backup, one on-site and one off-site. But if you don't have that kind of hardware, then it's a very good question. What kind of backup services are people using these days that are accessible? You can also use the old, I think it's still in there, the old Windows 7 backup tool in Windows 10. It's still there, I think, to make a complete image backup, which I do from time to time of the Mushroom FM PC in case we just need to completely restore the whole thing. So we'll open that up and see what people suggest in terms of backup strategies. Also, says this mysterious emailer, I still think note takers have their place. I do a podcast and I use my Braille notes to read quotes I have written down. I also worked at call centers. I had to write down people's information while they were talking to me, such as phone numbers the customer was having issues on his or her account. Yes, I could have paired a Braille display with my iPhone and done it that way, but then I would have had to delete everything I just wrote down after the phone call. I did not know how to do that on the iPhone with a Braille display. Also, it was just more of my battery power I didn't want to use on my iPhone. Wow. Well, playing devil's advocate on this one is not having learned how to delete text off your iPhone justification for somebody buying you presumably a $5,000 product. (laughs) I mean, it'd be cheaper to have someone come over and show you how to delete the text, wouldn't it? And you can plug the iPhone in, of course, or just have it on your desk on a wireless charger. Now the CMAR continues. As far as podcatchers go, I find that the Victor Reader stream is better for me to listen to podcasts on. I do use my phone a lot. However, I find the Victor Reader stream more flexible to move back and forth in a podcast. For example, I can move back and forth one, five, 10, and 30 minutes if I want or need to. With Downcast, I can't move that quickly. I don't know about Castro. I also find that the Victor Reader stream doesn't rely on the Apple directory. Believe it or not, there are podcasts out there that are not in the Apple directory. I believe the Victor just finds out the original feed instead of Apple or any other platform. Mm, A bit to unpack there as well. In Castro and other podcast apps, you can set the increments by which you can navigate. So normally I have, uh, I think, 30 seconds in either direction, but there aren't different keys. Absolutely, there are not uh, to skip by different increments. There's usually a slider on the screen in many of these apps that lets you jump a little further forward and back. But for me, and I don't own a Victory to Stream, the big deficit in its podcast support is the lack of chapter support. When you listen to Mosin at Large, for example, if we're having a discussion and you're not interested in that particular topic, you can just skip to the next chapter. Or even better, if you have Castro, you can treat those chapters like a playlist. So you can go through at the beginning of the episode and see all the different topics that we are going to be talking about this week and uncheck the ones that you're not interested in hearing about and then just play the podcast in Castro. And Castro will seamlessly skip the sections that don't interest you. And it's just a really great experience. 
So sure, you can jump by more increments, but you're not really sure where you're going to land. And I do hope that for those who do like the stream, they will introduce chapter support at some point because it just makes such a difference. I would be really surprised if the Victor stream is running its own podcast directory. And obviously, any good podcast app will let you enter an RSS feed yourself. But Humanware doesn't have the resources, and nor should they, to go out there and collate the over 2 million active podcasts that are out there. So if you are searching for podcasts on the stream and finding things, they are pulling it from some directory or other. And the majority of podcast apps use the Apple podcast directory, even some that are not on the Apple platform. Because if you are a podcast developer and you're not in Apple Podcasts, you may as well just give up. I mean, seriously, cash in your chips, pull up your tent, give it up. Because most podcast apps pull from that directory. If you're not there, hardly anybody's going to know that you exist. So when you have done all the pre-configuration things, you know, you've got your podcast logo, you've you've got a couple of episodes ready to go, and you're ready to publish. The first place you need to be listed is Apple Podcasts. Without that, there is no point in podcasting. Hey, Jonathan, this is Faraz again, recording this today on my shiny new iPhone 12 Pro. So hopefully you can tell the difference in sound quality. And I've been wanting to get a phone for a while. I had a 10, but was tempted to get one of those because of the LiDAR stuff and all the work that they put in. And I've actually found a benefit to using that LiDAR sensor. And I'm wondering if you've also found any benefits besides the people recognize, other people detection and all the other apps. I was just wondering about that. But the purpose of this message is I wanted to raise a point that you brought up in a previous episode, you mentioned that you called HP technical support because of an issue we're having with your HP laptop or something like that. And you raised the point that if you disclose that you're blind, people will treat you as idiots. To be honest, I'm frustrated by this. You know, this happened to me before and not just with a tech company. When I call like... It would get any tech company. Like if I call people like Apple, or sometimes if I tell them that I'm blind, just like how you, as you said one time, uh, they may be like, okay, well, are you really, 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 really blind? Can you see the screen? I mean, they don't even have proof. Now, myself, I'm not totally blind. I'm not totally blind. I'm legally blind, which means I do have some vision. Um, was born with uh, what's called a labor congenital amaurosis. So that means I do have some vision. But why should blind people, I mean, why should these people treat you like idiots? And I feel you, Jonathan, I feel you. I feel what you're talking about. And I hope we have a way for people to better understand that we are blind and to better treat us with any tech issue. Now, sometimes they're really helpful. When I call Apple to help me find something on their website, like if I'm trying to, if I'm having problems and I'm trying to access it, they'll kindly, either one of two things, A, tell me where to go and where, and, and which place exactly to go, or B, 
they could just remote into like I don't know if you've seen this, but Apple does what's called a remote kind of session where they'll automatically remote you in and, and you just have to accept and they could see exactly what you're doing. Brilliant. Brilliant. On Twitter, follow Mosin at large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at large, all one word on Twitter. Kathy Blackburn is writing in and says, I have yet to encounter a contactless thermometer that I consider accurate. The talking contactless, that's quite a mouthful, the the talking contactless thermometer we have at home has never given a reading above 96.9 degrees Fahrenheit. It has registered my temperature as low as 92. The cancer clinic at one of our local hospitals just installed a new device in its reception area. It speaks the visitor's temperature verbally. It apparently scans faces as well, and since we're all wearing masks, the scanner responds, not a real person. I can't help wondering if the hardware in the scanner is based on one of the newer iPhones. To me, these devices are not accurate enough to be considered scientific instruments. In my opinion, they are public health theatre. Abby Taylor says, Hello, Jonathan. I found your discussion of various Markdown editors intriguing. I looked at Markdown a while back when WordPress started murmuring about phasing out their classic editor, and Markdown seems so complicated with all the code necessary to create headings, links, etc. So, like you, I prefer to copy and paste material from Microsoft Word into WordPress. But as of recently, WordPress.com is making it harder to access the classic editor. And their Gutenberg editor, although somewhat accessible, in my opinion, is not as intuitive. The main problem I have is with categories and tags. With NVDA, I can find the combo box to insert tags. But after typing in a few, pressing enter after each one, my focus shifts elsewhere. And I can't get back to that combo box or see the tags I just entered. The category section seems to be non-existent, although I found it once or twice. One blogger I know lists her categories and tags at the bottom of her posts, placing them on separate lines and separating them with commas. But I don't think those are showing as such, meaning the posts aren't officially being categorized and the tags aren't visible to search engines. For now, I discovered a workaround that allowed me to at least edit my posts in the classic editor once I've created them in Gutenberg. But I understand WordPress is planning to phase out the classic editor altogether. So any suggestions you or any other listeners have on inserting categories and tags with Gutenberg would be greatly appreciated. Thank you for another great podcast episode. I'm looking forward to hearing more. Well, thank you for contributing, Abby. I'm very grateful to be running a self-hosted WordPress site. Markdown really isn't that complicated. And if you go back into the archives, I actually did a tutorial on Markdown and the basics because it's really straightforward. And that is in episode 48. See, it's handy to search the archives. You never know what one will find these days with a few episodes under our belt now. So if you go back to episode 48, you will find that Markdown tutorial 
and it may help, although I'm not sure that that will help with the categories problem that you're referencing here. If anybody can help with that, then do let us know. I also know that they do have quite a helpful WordPress room on Clubhouse, and there are WordPress blind developers who are on there. So if you have access to Clubhouse or you have the ability to get on, I'd be happy to send you an invite if you're not on it already, Abby, then you could pop into the Clubhouse room and ask there. But hopefully there are some people who are using the Gutenberg editor. As I say, I am not. I wasn't impressed when I first looked. And since on a self-hosted WordPress installation, I can just install the old editor. That's what I've stuck with. So I haven't used this. But if anybody has and can comment on any tips and tricks for tagging and categorizing posts, please do share that. I'm sure a lot of people would appreciate that. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. It's Janine Stanley, and I have a question for you or any of your listeners who may be using the Constant Contact app. Here's my dilemma. I am now using the Constant Contact app for our weekly news bulletin at IRA, and I've got a little problem because people like to navigate using headings, and I totally get that. I'm on board with that. Unfortunately, in the Constant Contact app, it is extremely difficult to put the regular H1 HTML code syntax in there to denote headings. And for some reason, in their templates, they prefer to have a special block for headings, which does not display the text as H1. It displays it in your lovely font of choice, all that kind of thing, but not as H1. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll just code my own. Not a problem. I can render things into HTML. I can use Markdown. And that doesn't seem to work either. So if anyone out there has a solution to this and is able to create emails or anything in Constant Contact using their editor or being able to paste some sort of a template in there that actually uses that that, uh the H series of numbers, H1, etc., code that's standard to designate that control as a heading, that would be wonderful. I would love to hear about it. And I am a huge fan of Markdown. Now that I'm um, using it a lot more for these kinds of things, I use an app on the Mac called Macdown. And the only problem that I have with Macdown, it has a preview pane, all of that good stuff, and accessibility is fairly good with it. But the only problem I have is uh, the line spacing, being able to get the correct amount of blank lines in. So any advice on that would be great because I have found that to be a problem uh, a bit with Markdown. And I know generally how to get a blank line, but I end up inserting a uh, less than BR greater than tag uh, to get sometimes the blank space that I need, say, between paragraphs and things like that. Anyway, thanks a lot, and uh, as always, enjoy the podcast. Thanks, Janine. I have not heard of Constant Contact, and when you mentioned it, I immediately thought of some sort of white cane app. But clearly, it's relating to newsletters and things of that nature. So if anyone else has used this and can enlighten us, that would be good. Hi there, Jonathan, and all the Motion at Large crowd out there. 
Last week, someone was asking about writing PHP code, and you've rather rashly, Jonathan, I have to say, suggested I could assist with this matter. I'm no great PHP expert. I get by, which is the best thing I could say. But I'm going to start with a question which really determines what advice I'd give to someone taking up PHP. My question really is, have you programmed before? Because that will really determine where you go first. If you've not programmed before, then PHP is a perfectly fine language to learn, and that, that's fine, but I will, I will point you in a different direction than I would do if you were a seasoned hack, hacker at programming, if you like. Um, so uh, if, you were, if you're starting out, I say PHP is very, very easy to learn. It's, it's very straightforward. Um, you can do as much or as little as, as you want uh, and build your skills up very gradually over time. The place I would probably start would be something like W3Schools, which I've got a whole series of tutorials, lessons, hand-holding exercises, and just basically get you up and running doing your nice simple wee tasks and then into more complicated things, into a bit of database work uh, with MySQL, into object-orientated programming, a bit of classwork, all that all that good stuff that we all know and love. Uh, and it basically it takes you through the various stages and you, you can pick an object as you go along. If you're, you're more, more of a programmer, though, you've, you've, been, you've been programmed for a while and you know what you're doing, I always say to people that if you, if you know one language, you can basically pick up any language. It's just a matter of learning a few syntax rules as to how it's done and you'll you will find it. But I mean, PHP is very much a server-based language, uh, which makes it slightly different from something like Visual Basic or something like that. But you, you, you'll, pick, you'll pick it up. You really just, what you want to do is generate web pages and that, that's pretty straightforward. As always with these things, I always think that Google is your friend and uh, I use a lot of Google all in, in my day-to-day -day when I'm trying to do things. And uh, you, you can generally find what you want to know. As a, as a general rule, though, if you want to find a, a built-in PHP function, I'd generally head, head over to www.php.net, which I would always describe as the, the PHP manual, because it basically lists all the functions, all the interactions and all the various parameters you can put in there. And it's 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 very precise and it gives you a whole, whole load of details uh, and will tell me which version of PHP each function runs on, uh, minimum version to maximum version, all, all that good stuff. Yeah, so that's always a very, very handy place to be. And of course, uh, the great place where all programmers live these days is Stack Overflow, where we spend most of our days uh, not doing any real work and looking at problems that other people have posted up or that we need to find an answer to. And that's that's a really great exchange place where you, you can find all kinds of things. There are various tutorials out there. There's various videos I've seen on YouTube. Um, yeah, it, it depends how you how you learn. And uh, just just have a go because basically you just take it along have a have a have a, have a footer about and basically until you get it to work it's, it's as straightforward as that you're not going to break anything nothing terrible is going to happen and uh, no have a bit of fun with php because it's, it's a nice fun language and say it can be as simple or as complex as you like it's very much yeah i'd like i'd almost describe it as a a language you can make procedural or you can go to full object orientation and make it as, as complicated and really obscure as you like. There are loads of libraries out there you can bring in and use in your own, your own work uh, and people are, are willing to help. And it's, it's a nice friendly atmosphere out there. So yeah, go out there, have a, have a bit of fun. And uh, if you want, if you get any questions specifically you want, you want to ask me, just uh, get, get them sent through Jonathan or, or send them to my mushroom address, Gordon at mushroomfm.com. I'm happy to, to help out if, if you want to get going. Uh, to another point that came up last week's show was from uh, Robin Christopherson 
who was asking a question which I, I hadn't really thought about before, which is whether speech synthesizers were actually causing us to have hearing issues. My hearing is not brilliant. It's not as good as it could be. It's not a terrible as something people have been hearing about over the last few weeks. And uh, my heart goes out to you all because I know how much of a precious gift hearing is. It really is the difference between... I, I just, it just lets my worst, worst nightmare, I have to, I have to confess. Uh, so I was interested in Robin's comments and I wondered actually more because in the last year since we've been working from home during this pandemic I actually think my hearing has is, is actually been easier to live with um, and I wondered if that's because I'm not using headphones so much because I'm sitting here in my, my, my dining room just me and my guide dog who doesn't really complain that much as uh, I have no headphones on and basically have the speech synthesizer rabbiting away in the background and doing all its all its usual good stuff so I wonder if that was maybe more of a thing because we do wear a lot more headphones than, than your, your, your sighted uh, participants if you like and I wonder if that maybe affects it more those closed environments whereby bugs and bacteria can grow inside these ear canals oh, sounds horrible doesn't it <laughs> so I wonder if there was maybe something more in that than and then just the, the speech sensors themselves but I've, I'm interested to find out if there, if there is any jaggy waves which are really a, a great theory Robin I'm very impressed uh, and I, I, I'm to see what, what people think thirdly and uh, this was something I didn't realise other people were having issues with, is uh, the focus displays and the Braille cells. Now, I, I got myself a new Focus 80 just last October. I'd previously had a Brilliant 80, which I'd used for the past, what, 16 years. And it was basically just, it was wearing out, literally. The the, the dots were, were, were being moulded by my hands. You know, it had been used that much. Uh, but... I absolutely love the Focus 80. It's a beautiful display. It's beautifully designed. It's lovely to use. It's it's actually function wise, it's 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 beautiful. It really is fantastically designed, and it's just the Braille cells are letting it down, and I I don't know why. It's it's just just an, an issue because it really it's 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 a beautiful display, but in the in the since, since October I've I've got uh, two cells which are failing already. I'm not willing to send it back yet because I'm going to wait till maybe August, September time, till my, my year's guarantee is nearly up and send it back then because, you know, if another two sales go between now and then, I don't really want to be sending it back twice in the one year because I'm going to have to do without it for a, a period of time, and which isn't brilliant, you know, because if, if you've got to hold down a job, uh, you, you really can't do, be doing without a Braille display. I mean, how many sighted people do you know who would do without a monitor for two to three weeks just because there was a, some missing pixels? We, they just wouldn't put up with it. And, you know, we, we really have to be quite firm about this. this it's, it's just not well, it's just not good enough, really, I'm afraid. Because we're paying an awful lot of money for these displays. If you think about it, what, five, six thousand pounds, you could almost buy one of these super Apple monitors that uh, people are, are, are saying are, are so incredibly wonderful you know, for the Mac Pros. Uh, so that's, that's a common of what we're doing here with some of these displays. So hopefully they'll, they'll improve. There was one other thing I was going to mention, just, just on the same subject of, of uh, Braille, with a capital B, of course. Um, one of the things I love doing is sitting in Microsoft Word and typing away, just brailing away, because it's almost like using a, a Braille note taker. It is that, it's that, it's that well integrated. It's really just a joy to use. And the only thing I would say is, you know, if you make a wee contraction mistake, um, it some it just it doesn't always well. You can feel it under your fingers, and you have to go back and fix it. But it'd be lovely 
if like sighted people, the autocorrect function inside Word would actually fix it. It would realise it's an actually a braille mistake rather than a, a word it just does not recognise. Whereas you know if, if you spelt the word wrong, uh, but you got most of the letters correct, it was just a, 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 a misspelling. It would fix it for you because the autocorrect would work. But I wonder if there's a way of letting Microsoft have a have a function whereby it would you you're using a braille display and therefore it would correct your braille mistakes. That w- that would be fantastic. You know th- th- that's a wee bit of something for people to think about uh, maybe at some point. Anyway, thank you very much for the show and uh, I look forward to to hearing people's contributions. Thanks, Jonathan. Debbie Armstrong's writing in and says if Bookshare in Elias and public library offerings aren't enough for you, check out Scribble, which is spelled S-C-R-I-B-L. It is a service, she says, I discovered when searching for podio books. Back when podcasting was fairly new, there was a website called podiobooks.com. It allowed authors to distribute their unpublished work through podcasts. Authors usually read their own work but sometimes delegated a friend to do the audio narration. Podcasts were free, but you were invited as a listener to make donations to the authors of books you liked. Podio Books made Scott Sigler, the horror writer, fairly famous. Other authors, too, were able to get a print publisher to publish their book and actually earn royalties. I was an avid listener at the time, But then my job got more demanding, and I got a VR stream, so it was easier to use Bard and Bookshare. Now in surfing around for possible interesting material to write about for the ledger, I discovered that Scribble has taken over the entire Podio Books collection and expanded the concept. Scribble also has e-books, and they have some interesting marketing ideas. Prices of their audio and e-books are based on how popular the book is. So, like an Uber ride, the price can fluctuate. Books are first offered for free, and as their ratings grow, the price increases. When you see the word $CP, it stands for their term, crowd pricing. It's typically much, much cheaper than Audible. All the previous Podio Books collection is still free and offered as a podcast. Each book is a separate cast, with a separate RSS feed. You can either put the feed link in your podcatcher or there's a link to subscribe via Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe with a VR stream if you search its podcast directory for either Podio Books or the book's name. I typically just save the RSS feed links in a text file and then paste an individual link into a podcast app when I'm ready to start downloading episodes. Anything produced on Scribble's platform can be read or listened to through the browser or their Scribble app. Another unique thing about Scribble is the way you search for books. You can do a typical genre search, say romance or science fiction, but you can also filter your search using story elements. You check or uncheck boxes for items such as book length, violence, sexual content, pacing, physical action, humour, social commentary, or target audience. This makes finding a book you like easier. The site is accessible, but if you are impatient, you might find going through the filters rather tedious, and they don't use headings on the list items. However, the books are in a list view, so you can navigate them using list item hotkeys with your screen reader. I have not tested the accessibility of the app yet, And I haven't purchased a book either, 
but I know you get the whole thing rather than a podcast if it's not originally from Podio Books. I have also not tested the accessibility of their ebook offerings. Thanks, Debbie. So that's Scribble. And if you want to go to the website, it's Scribble, S C R I B L dot com. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J O N A T H A N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line, it's a US number, 864 60 Mosin. That's 864 606 6736. Mosin.